Dear Father, we come in the name of Jesus, thanking you for the promise of your presence here this morning. Where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. And so we choose to honor you today. The scripture tells us that if we submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee. And we trust, Lord, that the will of God will be accomplished this morning here. As we study your word, that you will teach us, you will instruct us, you'll open our hearts and our minds to the truth, and that we will be transformed as a result of our exposure to the truth as wielded by the Spirit of the living God. And Father, that truth will change us so that we are used of you to minister in the venue where you place us each and every day to family, friends, co-workers, students, whoever are part of our lives, that people will see Christ in us, especially as we come to the end of this age, this millennium, and a time when it seems that this country in particular is in a tailspin. Lord, we need you to work in a mighty way, and I pray that we will be soldiers of Christ, advancing the kingdom of God in the power of your Holy Spirit. May this hour that we spend together here this morning be a step further in strengthening us for the work you've called us to do. I thank you for each one here. I thank you, Lord, for those that are a part of the class but are away right now on vacation. Pray you will touch them, keep them safe, and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the first chapter of the book of Judges, first chapter of the book of Judges, I'd like to read beginning at verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forth, forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Har-Herez, or Mount Herez, in Elon and in Shalabim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. <laughs> now you just crack it open and read that for your uh, devotion in the morning. You say, oh, well, let's see here. <laughs> what exactly did I read here? There are a lot of interesting and important truths that can be gleaned from even this passage, which is full of names that are part Hebrew and, and part Canaanite. Last time, as we, we went through verse 33 last time, and I forgot to point out a couple of things so that there won't be any confusion here. First of all, in verse 33, we're dealing with the tribe of Naphtali, and you have your a map that we worked with before, and, and the tribe of Naphtali is way up in the north here. It runs along the west side of the Sea of Galilee and up the Jordan River to the Hula, Lake Hula, which doesn't really exist anymore today and all the way up to the border of, of Phoenicia. And Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath, which are mentioned in there, are located, it is believed, the exact location is unknown, up in the north central portion of Naphtali. What is important here is to note that, as I've emphasized to you before, most of these names mean something. For example, Beth Shemesh means house of the sun, S-U-N. And because that is true, you will find these names are repeated. There are numerous locations with the same name. It's just like Bethlehem. We always think of Bethlehem. Well, we know where Bethlehem is, south of Jerusalem. It's where Jesus was born. But there is also a Bethlehem up in the north in Galilee, which you almost never hear of. 
this Beth Shemesh is not the Beth Shemesh that we're going to be running into later in the book of Judges. That is the city down uh, in the tribal area of Dan, <clears throat> which we see a little bit about here in the 34th verse. And it is an important place later on. In fact, if you go over there today, you will find that right there near Beth Shemesh, they have a major factory where they construct the Kafir jet. I'm, I'm sure that the Amorites would have been considerably intimidated had uh, the Israelites been able to build Kafir jets at that time as they are now uh, at Beth Shemesh. <coughs> Beth Shemesh probably would not have remained in Canaanite hands as a result, of course. But uh, Beth Anath is also a city which means the house of Anath, and Anath was a goddess who was related to Baal, a kind of a co, uh, you know, a co-god with Baal, a female version. And she was worshipped particularly by some of the Phoenicians. And so this city was named after this particular god. Both of them remained in Canaanite hands, as you might imagine. What is interesting, of course, is that the name Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath is a hybrid name because Beth is a Hebrew word, means house, a house of or place of. <clears throat> and so you've kind of got a a dual situation here. Sometimes you'll find, as you read through books like Joshua and Judges, that the Canaanite name for the city is retained. Other places you discover that the Hebrew name has been inserted for the town or the place. Discovering the locations has not been easy today to know where these towns were located because many of them, of course, have been lost in the years of history. And some of them are found because the Arabs, interestingly enough, have named their villages in names that sometimes can be seen as derived from the ancient Hebrew name of the spot. And from that, archaeologists have been able to locate where many of these old cities actually were located. In uh, verse 34, we're dealing about with the tribe of Dan. And again, you look at your map. Uh, Dan occupied a very narrow little strip here in the central part of Canaan. Uh, they were sandwiched in between uh, Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south, the two big tribes, and a little border on the east side with Benjamin in the hill country there. And what we discover in this passage, now again, let me remind you, if, if I can, I don't know if you still have this other map that I gave you which gives the regional breakdown of the land, but Dan actually stretches it, the east side of the tribal area butts up against the Judean highlands. So you have the highlands coming down into the sort of the lower hills. They butt up into that, and then it stretches out across the Shephelah to the coastal plain. The Shephelah is that kind of rolling hill and valley area, low hills, broad valleys, before you actually come out onto the coastal plain. Now what is interesting here is you discover on this map that you have a creek, a Nahal as they call it there, called the Yarkon. The Yarkon dry, uh, drains from the hill country of Ephraim over to the coast, and it separates the plain of Sharon to the north from the plain of Philistia to the south. Plain of Sharon was generally in Israelite hands. The plain of Philistia was generally not in Israelite hands. And of course, the Yarkon flows right into modern Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv is, is right along there. Most of uh, Tel Aviv was in the tribal area of Dan. Of course, there was no Tel Aviv then. Tel Aviv wasn't founded until the 1920s by the modern products of Zionism, I, I suppose you could say. So if you, if you look through the scripture for Tel Aviv, you won't find it because it is a modern town. It's only about 70, 75 years old. So. But it is, of course, today the largest uh, city in, in the whole country. In this passage, we discover 
that Dan is being deprived or denied uh, the area that it was given by Joshua in the allotment of the land. It is being denied its territory by what are called in this passage the Amorites. Now the name Amorite is a very old name. It's at least as old as the name Canaanite. But Canaanite and Amorite come from different origins. The Amorite name actually possibly is even older in terms of historical record, although the name Canaan goes all the way back into you know, the, the post-Noah days. The word Amorite uh, comes from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is where Saddam Hussein rules today, right? Iraq. Mesopotamia was ruled or inhabited primarily by uh, people who were known as Sumerians. They were of possible Indo-European stock. It, their exact origin is unknown. Their language has really not been able to be deciphered to the place they could locate it within the linguistic uh, scope of country, of, of peoples. Uh, living within the territory were some Shemites. Uh, they were known as Akkadians. The word Amorite was given by these people to Semitic peoples who lived to the well, I, the way I'm facing you, it's going to look the reverse. If, if the Tigris Euphrates are over here, to the west, towards Canaan. Shemitic peoples or Semitic peoples, you know, descendants of Shem, that's where we get the name Semite or Semitic. These peoples were living to the west of Mesopotamia, and so they were called Westerners. And that's what the name Amorite means. It simply means Westerners. So the people to the west uh, uh, were the Amorites. Now, the term Amorite apparently was not ethno-specific. It didn't refer to one exact group. It's like saying today, this person is a Hopi, and by that we mean a certain tribe, as, as opposed to using the word Indian for, for you know, all the, the people who are of different families, different tribes, different clans. So numerous tribes of Westerners are all lumped together in this word Amorite. And it seems that it was therefore used ge generically in the Old Testament. Now the Amorites and the Canaanites may have been of different origins, Canaanites being the descendants of Canaan, living in the Phoenicia-Canaan area. Phoenicians were Canaanites. But in this region to the west, they became so intertwined ling uh, linguistically, uh, socially, religiously, that for all practical purposes, the name Amorite and the name Canaanite became interchangeable in the scripture. So when you see Canaanite, you see Amorite, it's just like using synonyms for the same pagan people who dwell in the land. Although the two names do have different origins, they have come and blended together by the time we are looking at here. Now what you find here is a group of Canaanites who not only were not forced to flee the land by Israel, but have come back like gangbusters and have actually recaptured some land, in this case from the tribe of Dan. The cities mentioned in this passage, which are in verse 35, Har Heres, which is roughly translated Mount Heres, which means mountain of the sun. Heres is a Canaanite word for sun. In Aalon and Shalabim. These are all towns located to the east side of uh, the tribal area of Dan. So Dan is being crunched. I mean, the tribe of Dan is being squished way over against Benjamin. 
by all these Amorites. Because you see the little black dots here on this map. These are the cities of refuge. And one of the cities of refuge was supposed to be Elon. <laughs> but it's in the hands of the Canaanites, the Amorites. So obviously it isn't a city of, re uh, not a city of refuge, but a, a, um, a Levitical city. It's, it's not in Levite hands at this moment anyway. And, and the same is true of Gezer, which is right there in the corner where you see Ephraim and Dan. There's a little corner right down there, the little city of Gezer. That's supposed to be a Levitical city too. And yet we read back in the 29th verse of the, of the passage that Ephraim hadn't conquered it either. So the Levites are getting it in the neck about a third of all the cities that are mentioned in this whole first chapter are supposed to be Levitical cities which are said to still be in the hands of the Canaanites. Although, of course, when the Israelites got strong, they, they made them forced labor. Well, that really helps a lot. It doesn't convert the city into a Levitical city. So although the Levites were supposed to hold 48 cities, they do not at this time possess 48 cities. Now, Har Heres, which means Mountain of the Sun, will be known in Hebrew as Beth Shemesh, which means House of the Sun. Now, obviously to the Canaanites, it meant House of the Sun because they worshiped the sun god there. But to the Israelites, they probably continued to use the name because it was at nearby Elon where Joshua had stood with his arms spread wide and the sun stood still for 24 hours. And so to commemorate that they maintained the name House of the Sun, not referring to the sun god, of course, but referring to that great miracle. As you look at these cities, what is very interesting about them is that uh, most of them have a name that is translatable. For example, Elon means a uh, place of the deer, D-E-E-R. But what is more interesting to me than that is Shalabim because of what happens later in the book of Judges. Shalbim is in the tribal territory of Dan. Shalbim means the haunt or the place of foxes. And do you remember a judge from Dan later on in the book who had something to do with foxes? Yeah, Samson. Samson, it said, caught 300 foxes and tied their tails together with a torch in between and released them into the Philistine fields. Where did he get all the foxes? Well, apparently there was kind of a concentration of them near Shalbim the haunt or the place of the foxes. Kind of interesting how it all comes together given the fact that Samson was of the tribe of Dan and it was in this very area that he did his judging over, uh, over Israel. What this means is that the tribe of Dan is scrunched into an area of about possibly 25 square miles. Now 25 square miles is pretty small given the fact it's not even half the size of the city of Reading. So that's a pretty small area to crunch a whole tribe into, even if it isn't one of the larger tribes, jammed up against the territory of Benjamin. Later on in the book of Judges, towards the end of the book, we're going to discover that the tribe of Dan hikes out of there and goes all the way up to the north near Mount Hermon and reestablishes themselves up there, themselves up there. Why? They got tired of being scrunched down here. So they hiked up there and, and opened up a territory and defeated some of the Canaanites who lived up there so that they could occupy the area. If you visit modern Israel and you go from Dan to Beersheba, which is the traditional parameters of, of Israel, 
in the uh, Old Testament period, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan in the north is uh, Tel Dan, a city up there, and that is after the tribe moves up there, because that was not where they originally allotted the territory. They move way up to the north near Lake Hula, up here. Uh, this, this map here, that's the Sea of Galilee, and the, the river goes north. That little circle up there, that's Lake Hula, which has largely been drained today. And, and then there are three, only shows two on this map, but there are three branches that come south off of Mount Hermon and out of Lebanon, which form the Jordan River up there. And Tel Dan is on one of those branches, right at the base of Mount Hermon. Beautiful place. I mean, I could understand why they'd want to move there from where they had been before. It's a very beautiful location up there. Lots of water. There's a park up there today, a national park for Israel. Why did this tragedy happen? Why did Dan not occupy its territory? If Dan was not strong enough in numbers to defeat the Amorites, where were their neighbors? Where was Ephraim? Where was Benjamin? Where was Judah? Ephraim and Judah were large tribes. They had large armies. They should have said, Hell, help us. We will come and help you. We'll come down with our forces and we'll join forces with you, men of Dan, and we will help you defeat the Amorites of that particular region. All we discover in this passage is in, um, at the end of verse 35, it says that, but when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, meaning Ephraim and Manasseh, that they became forced labor. Well, if you turn back to verse 29, it says, neither Ephraim, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. So really, what is this talking about? It's probably talking about Gezer. That when Ephraim grew strong, they forced the Canaanites who lived at Gezer. By the way, Gezer was also supposed to be a, Le a Levitical city. That the Canaanites who lived there became forced labor. So we're not talking about any help for Dan in that particular passage here. There's no evidence of any help being offered here by the neighbors for Dan. They were busy fighting their own Canaanites and settling their own land, they thought. And they felt they had enough to do without becoming involved in their, someone else's struggle. That's your problem, Dan. You take care of it, Dan. We got our problems here, Dan. And so they turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to the situation that developed and feeling it wasn't their business. Well, you know, as you think about that, I, I, to me at least, you can't help but think of our situation today. Are, are we guilty of being like Benjamin, Ephraim, or Judah? Are, are we, do we turn blind eyes and, and deaf ears to those around us who are in need? Could it be that we feel we have enough to do? We, we like to use the little phrase today that we have enough on our plate, right? That's used a lot today to say we're very busy. My plate is full. Can't add anything else to it now. And so we feel like we have enough to do. So that's our excuse from helping those that we might be able to help that are in need around us. The other tribes should have come to the help of Dan. After all, Judah and Simeon cooperated. Why couldn't Judah help Dan? Why should they allow one of the tribes to be squished back in the corner and have all these Canaanites occupying this territory free and, and uncontrolled by the Israelites? There's a passage that uh, meddles in our lives in Philippians chapter 2. A couple of verses there. 
I don't know how often you've noticed, as I have, that the Scripture meddles in our lives. In Philippians chapter 2, I'd like to read verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now that is not a passage advocating busybodiness. It is not saying we're supposed to stick our noses into other people's business. It's saying that where we can help, we need to help. We need to have our eyes open and our ears open to see the need of those around us. And of course, the scripture says, particularly later in Hebrews, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Can you imagine how many problems would be eliminated within the church and within our lives individually? if we could just live up to those two little bitty verses. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Where would the arguments go? Where would the wars go? Now, where would the conflicts go? They'd be gone. They wouldn't even arise in the first place if we each considered the other person more important than ourselves, right? But we have a real serious problem. It's called me. <laughs> you know, we all have one. And uh, me wants to be number one. And that's one of the things that the Spirit of God has to overcome in our lives. And of course, I don't think it ever is totally overcome as long as we're walking in this flesh. But all of you probably can think of someone in your history who exhibited this passage to you more than anyone else. Somebody who was so, exhibited such humility that you felt like you could talk to them about anything because you knew that they took you seriously and they really cared and they really prayed. I think, if nothing else, the lesson from the tribe of Dan is this, that we need to be aware of those around us who are hurting and realize that their needs are important and sometimes we have to set aside what we think is important in our own lives to, to minister to others. It takes time. It takes strength. You probably have noticed, as we've emphasized before, how difficult prayer really is. True prayer is hard because it's a spiritual warfare. And it's really easy to do anything else but pray. That's one of the reasons why most churches have very small prayer meetings. Because most people, you know, they say, well, you know, the people who go to prayer meetings have a call to prayer. Well, I think if we read through the scripture here, we'll find that it doesn't say specific people are called to prayer. It says pray without ceasing generically, referring to the whole body of Christ. That doesn't mean we spend 24 hours a day on our knees in a prayer meeting. But the attitude of prayer and the importance of prayer and committing ourselves to prayer is a real way by which we can reach out and by which we can serve the Lord and serve others. In, in the case of Ephraim and uh, Judah and Benjamin, they not only didn't pray, they didn't act, they didn't do anything to help Dan. And so the tribe of Dan would lose its territory. It would be a real tragedy for that tribe. And later on in the book of Judges, you find some pretty awful stuff related to the tribe of Dan. How can this be, you know? And uh, you will, what is interesting is you'll find in the New Testament there are some lists where the tribe of Dan is excluded, not included in the list of tribes of the, uh, of the Old Testament.
The problem for Dan was that, first of all, they were not walking with God and neither were the other tribes walking with the Lord as they should have been. The Lord, as you know today, gets a bum rap from a lot of people. The Lord said that I should uh, burn that cross on their yard or I should you know, shoot that abortion doctor or whatever else. People who truly walk with the Lord, whose eyes are open to Him, whose ears are open, who, who are in the Word of God, they walk in peace, they walk in gentleness, they walk in faith. Sure, there are times Jesus used the whip to drive the money changers out of the temple, right? And so some people take that as the only stance for Christians. We've got to go around driving all the gays out of the church and whatever else, you know, which is not what that was about at all. Meek and gentle is the term primarily used of Jesus, and we are to be like he and to be meek and gentle. And had the other tribes been thinking of what it is God had called them to do, they'd said, Dan's in trouble, let's help them. And the Amorites would have been obliterated. Now, pockets of Canaanites existed in the other tribal territories. Obviously, they weren't even carrying it out in their own territory. And so how could they, who weren't even living by faith, help another tribe accomplish what God had called it to do? This really bodes evil for the years ahead. And that's what the book of Judges is all about. The book of Judges is not a very uplifting book. Oh yes, there are times when, when we see the power of God coming through. We see the Gideons and, you know, and the Baraks and uh, Ehuds. Yeah, very interesting as we move along here. We find that our current prime minister of Israel bears the name of two judges uh, from the book of Judges, Ehud Barak. And uh, I don't know what that means about the future, uh, particularly when you consider that the previous prime minister's name meant the gift of God. Well, we'll see what God is going to do. But what about Dan? What could Dan have done without Ephraim? Benjamin and Judah. Dan could have defeated the Amorites and conquered their allotment, controlled all those cities without anything but maybe a word of encouragement from Judah. Hey, go to it, guys. We're behind you. If they had been willing to step out in the faith that God had given to them and the promises that God had given to them already, even if they were badly outnumbered by the Amorites, they could have won the victory by God's power. How do we know that? Well, we know it by one little example that shows up a little bit later in the book of Judges. A single man from the tribe of Dan, whose name was Samson, would go out in the strength of God and kill 1,000 Philistines with nothing more than a jawbone of a donkey in his hand. Now, I don't know how lethal a jawbone of a donkey is, but obviously for 1,000 men, it was very lethal. But how could he do that? If you ever, you know, if you just think about it. I don't care if the guy's Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, if a thousand guys are coming at him from every direction with all these weapons, how in the world? I don't care how strong you are. How are you going to fight them all off? A thousand guys, that's a lot of guys. It could only be done in the strength of God, obviously. Well, if, this, if God could give Samson the strength to defeat a thousand Philistines, what's, what's the problem with the tribe of Dan? Did they have any real promise? Well, let me read from the... 26th chapter of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. 
This is the promise that they could have leaned on. This is, they could have said, God has promised. We'll go forth and we will eliminate the Amorites ourselves. Leviticus 26, verse 1. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out. Notice, this is a conditional phrase. It says if. Then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in the land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. You'll notice that there is a, an increasing factor there. Uh, five will chase a hundred, that's 5%. A hundred will chase 10,000, that's 1%. So the bigger the enemy army, the smaller the number of percentage-wise believers it takes. The tribe of Dan with only 100 men could have defeated a thousand. I mean, obviously, I mean, we're dealing with, a, with a, a statement that's a generic thing. It's not saying if you have exactly 100, you can chase 10,000. If you have only 99, it's, you know, I mean, the idea is few of you will rout many of the enemy in the strength of God. The kingdom of hell cannot stand against the kingdom of God when God's people are acting in faith, obedience, and prayer. So Dan could have overcome without the help of their neighbors. But their neighbors stand condemned for not helping them in any way, shape, or form. Well, let's read on into the second chapter of Judges here. <laughs> God shows up. Okay. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. By the way, just to stop here for a minute, there, there are some people who think that history is an irrelevant subject. But if you read through the Bible, you see God keeps bringing it up. God is the great historian. He keeps saying, like he does here, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you to the land, and I will, I mean, he's saying what we've already said, and you go through the book of the Psalms, and you keep seeing, God keeps recounting everything he did. Why? Because it is looking back on what he has done that gives us the faith to move ahead in further victory. Verse 2, and as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you've done? Therefore I said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. It shall come about when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept, so they named the place Bochim, which means weepers, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. What we find in this passage, I think, is an example of what happens to a lot of people who have a momentary religious experience, but it doesn't transform their lives. 
And, and this creates this whole idea of people being able to lose their salvation. Oh, but he went forward and he went saved, but now he acts like the devil. He must have lost his salvation. Well, I think we're looking at an Old Testament example of this very thing. Because the angel of the Lord comes and he speaks to the people. Oh, Lord, we've done such well. Oh, they weep and, you know, they, they have a sacrifice. And they go out and live like the <coughs> devil, you know, and still keep the Amorites in the land. No transformation. No real work of God in the depths of the heart to transform the soul. I know that most of you, like my wife and I, are, are just so greatly relieved when our children actually walk with the Lord by their own choice. And, and you can think of them as your, as your friend. And you can pray with them and know they understand what you're talking about. And you're not constantly nursing them along and trying to say, okay, now we, you know, trying to build this little fence around them so that they won't fall out and go off and live like the devil. But it's in them. It's, it's their heart, their, their life, their commitment. And of course, it moves to the grandchildren and, and to the great-grandchildren. The Whaley's were telling me they've got another one. And so got six of them now, great-grandchildren that is. You know, the generation comes, and, and it's such a blessing for the future generations to have grandparents, great-grandparents who know the Lord and pray for those, those children. That's why um, years ago when, when my wife's father died, we felt uh, such a great loss because, uh, because he was a man of prayer and a man who cared about his grandchildren, and uh, <laughs> a lot of his grandchildren need him. Of course, God knows what he's doing and, and takes people in the right time, I guess. I don't guess, but I mean, you know, God does what's right. But from our perspective, sometimes it looks like, God, couldn't you have kept him around a little longer? So what we have here in this passage is, is a brief account of a momentary repentance and a momentary revival, which isn't really a revival. You know, we always, there's always the joke about, you know, Holy, Holy Ghost revival here from July 7 to July 14, you know. Uh, we, we put God in his little time box and say God's going to have a revival or revive us at this particular time. God revives our hearts when we're, when we're repentant. True repentance precedes any work that God ever does. And I don't see in this passage any true repentance. Um, they, they weep because they feel like they're guilty, but there is no repentance here. There's no saying, oh, God, we've got to get rid of those high places and, and those sacred images and pillars and drive the Amorites out of the land. It's kind of like, oh, God, why did we not do it? Then go out and then just ignore the whole thing. Too hard. <laughs> it's too hard to tear down those sacred pillars and to cut down those groves. It's too hard to drive out the Canaanites. This is really a fascinating passage, actually. Because it reveals to us the length to which God will go to evoke obedience on the part of his people, even knowing it won't be permanent. You, you and I have all probably had mountaintop experiences. Maybe it was a camp or wherever it was where we really felt close to the Lord and, and we walked off down in the valley again and, you know, screwed up. And what we know is that God is faithful. And he's willing to take us to another mountaintop experience. And, and even though these people are, are not going to walk in obedience, even though they've walked face to face with the living God, he still comes to see them. And, and you see this throughout the book of Judges. Now, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Why are you down the hole, Gideon? Well, because I've got to thresh the grain in secret here. I don't want the enemy to see me. 
He calls him man of valor, and he knows he's a chicken. <laughs> you know, down in this hole. What do you mean man of valor? I mean, he's smart enough to know he's no man of valor. But in God, in obedience to God, we all become men and women of valor. But it's only in his strength. And, and throughout Judges, we keep seeing this. We, we look at Samson, we think, what a jerk. All this power, and yet he wastes it womanizing. And yet, obviously, there was repentance at the end because he's listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the champions of faith. You say, faith? Because God gave him one last opportunity. And, of course, he killed the 3,000 of the enemy and died in the process, but I think it was an act of real repentance. He saw, finally, with his eyes blind, he, he, he really saw with the spiritual eyes the truth, and he was transformed. So that's the story of the book of Judges. One judge after another through a dozen judges. Some of them we don't know much about, like a whole, a whole verse given to Shamgar, you know, whoopee. But in other cases, multiple chapters, like in the case of Samson. And so, um, we don't have time to develop this today, but the angel of the Lord, I think God appears in a physical form. This is a theophany, if there ever is a theophany in the scripture. And he literally walks among them. He walks up the hill from Gilgal to Bochim. You know, and unless you visualize the land, I mean, God literally walked from the Jordan Valley at 900 feet below sea level up the hill to 2,000 feet above sea level, wherever Bochim was. Climbed 3,000 feet, but he did it. Walked on this earth before Jesus walked on this earth. We have the pre-incarnate Christ walking from Gilgal to Bochim to tell the people, I want you to obey me. Well, in two weeks, we'll, we'll pick up there with this, uh, with this passage.